Thank you for the wonderful uh, worship and, and just coming into the presence of the Lord. Isn't he uh, a good, good father? That's great. Um, so we're rejoining our annual theme for, the, or our theme for this year, which is Restore, Here as it is in Heaven. And what we're doing is looking at this year, looking at the kingdom of heaven, specifically through what we learn about it through the Gospel of Matthew. And all of the things that Jesus said. And one of the things when we started off this year in the fall, we, we looked at and realized that the kingdom of heaven is not just something that's in the future. It's something that's here and available to us right now. That Jesus came and brought the kingdom of heaven to us and said, you can enter into it now. Maybe not in its fullness. There's a time coming when everything, everything that God has made or ever made will be fully restored to him. And that will be the time when we enjoy the kingdom of heaven in its absolute fullness. But we don't have to wait for that day to begin to enter in and experience the kingdom of heaven. But to do that, we have to do a couple of things. Jesus said that to do that, first of all, we have to be born of the Spirit. It is a spiritual kingdom. And so we need to have the Holy Spirit come into our lives through our new birth in Christ so that we can begin to be transformed from the inside and we're no longer merely human, but now we are also human beings who are born and led by the Holy Spirit, God in us, to open our eyes and open our hearts. The other thing Jesus said is that to enter into the kingdom, you have to become like a little child. You have to be willing to humble yourself and come before God like a little child saying, Lord, teach me, lead me, show me. And in doing that, our eyes are opened, our hearts are softened, and we can begin to see and experience the kingdom of heaven here and now in this life. We looked at the Beatitudes uh, before the Advent season and reminded ourselves, as Jesus said, that the values of this kingdom are not like the values of the world that you and I grow, have grown up in and you and I live in every day. It's a very different kind of kingdom. It's a very different kind of life. It's a different way of experiencing life. Sometimes not what we expect, and often the inverse of what we have come to accept to be common in the world that you and I live in today. That's one of the reasons why, without the Spirit and without humility, it doesn't make sense. The kingdom of heaven simply doesn't make sense to us. Um, and so we need those things. We had a wonderful Advent season. We came back after Advent and spent a few weeks, the last few weeks, in Isaiah 55, reminding ourselves that in everything that we do, we want to be listening to God. We want to be led by God. We, we recognize that we need God and his Holy Spirit in us to guide us and lead us and direct us every day of our lives. And we want to be a people, a church, that is known for having a listening posture that we are coming before God each and every day and each and every week and saying, Lord, we are here. Your servants are listening. You speak. We will listen. We will obey. And that we desire to be a people, a church that is characterized by that kind of submission to God. So if you're a regular forest broker, um, now you know what we're all about and what we want to be all about and where we're going as a church. And if you're visiting us today and just checking us out, now you know what we're all about and where we're going and what we're trying to accomplish as a church. And if you're checking us out, wondering if this is a church for you, well then, now you know what we're all about and what we're, what we're thinking about and where we're trying to go and is it for you? And I pray that it might be. So we're back into uh, the Sermon on the Mount. 
And we're starting now uh, a series of five weeks where we look at what are called the antithesis statements of Jesus. And what Jesus does in this part of the Sermon on the Mount is he takes what they, they have always believed or, or understood to be true about what God wants with respect to the law and what he wants with respect to their uh, sexuality and what he wants with respect to uh, the way that they get along with one another and what, what he wants with respect to the way that they worship him and conduct themselves as a people of faith. And Jesus comes along in each of these areas and more. We're only going to cover five. But he comes along and he says to them, and he says, You have heard it said, but now I say to you. And what he does is he takes what they have commonly understood, what, they've, what they believe is acceptable practice, and he takes it in a whole radical different direction. And he challenges them with a whole new way of thinking about what God wants for them. And it's radical stuff. You know the way the Sermon on the, of the Mount ends. At the end of it, people were astonished at his teaching because he taught as somebody who had authority. Who was this Jesus that he would come along and say, you've heard it said this, and he quotes scripture to them, but I say to you this. And it's something so much more challenging and so much deeper. But Jesus, as we know, is King of kings and Lord of lords, and it's his kingdom that we're seeking to enter into, and he came to restore what God had created and intended. And so these statements are important because they give us insight and direction into the way God intends us to live the restored life, the life of the kingdom, the life of men and women and young people who are born of the Spirit and being led by the Spirit and are seeking to honor and glorify God with every single day of their lives. So the first of these that we're going to look at is not the first in order. The first in order is actually about murder. But we're going to look at and spend two weeks looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. So if you have your Bible or your phone, you want to open it up to that. Uh, let's read it together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 30. Where it says this. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we submit to your word. We know that this is your divine word revealed in scripture, preserved for generations, faithfully by your church. And it comes to us today. Now, read in our hearing, Lord, we open our hearts and our minds and our ears to you to say, Teach us, show us. Help us to have hearts like little children that are willing to be led and learn what it is that you are saying in these verses. Holy Spirit, we invite you to bring these verses to life in our hearing. And Father, I pray for us as a people. What we are about to hear over the next little while is real. It's very real. And Lord, you don't hide from reality, even though sometimes we do. 
We hide because we are a sinful people. But you are a redeeming God. You come looking for us, you find us, you call us, and when we listen and respond, you forgive us, you clean us up, you set us on our feet, and you continue to lead us in your kingdom. You are marvelous and wonderful and glorious, Lord. So, Lord, I pray that uh, in the time that we're going to spend both in this passage and in talking about it, that it would be your words that come to life in our hearing. I pray against the enemy of our souls who will take anything that is said here today and twist it in any way that he can to his advantage. I rebuke him in the powerful name of Jesus. These are your words, and we desire to hear your voice, and we command all others to be silenced. Lord, we live in a world that is absolutely broken when it comes to what you intended for us as sexual beings. And we are tainted by that every single day of our lives. But you call us to be a holy people, and you call us to be a pure people, and you call us to be your people, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can help us do that. And so we submit to you and ask that you lead us in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So this passage comes to us in two parts. Uh, what Jesus is talking about here. The first part is, is verse 27, where he says this, You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now we want to park here for a couple of minutes and just think about what Jesus is saying here. So they knew, obviously you don't sleep with somebody else's spouse. That's a no-brainer. So clearly, that's going to be a sin. So they get that much. Uh, even though, you know, it happens, people are broken, they stumble, they fall into uh, all kinds of, of uh, traps that way, everybody knows that's wrong. At least if you're a God-fearing person. And so they recognize that. And so he says, yeah, we get that. You've heard it said, you don't commit adultery. That's what the law says, that's what the law expects. Everybody knows it's wrong. But I'm telling you that the sin falls way before you ever get to that point. That the sin happens long before that ever happens. Because I'm telling you, he says, that to look at a woman with the wrong desire is already to commit the sin. The word desire in the Greek is actually a neutral word. It, it's neither good nor bad. There are great desires, there's good desires, there are the right kinds of desires, or even the right kinds of desires sexually. We'll talk a lot about that next week. But there's also the wrong kind of desires. Desires can be used for the wrong purposes. Desires can be used for selfish means, and desires can be used in a sinful way. And so what, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying to view a woman, to look at a woman with the wrong desires, you've already committed the sin. The sin is already there. The sin is already at work in your mind and in your heart. You're already off track. And that's important for us to understand that Jesus is talking about that. Now, much of what we're going to talk about when we look at the scriptures is, has to do with the problem that men have with this because it was obviously a much more patriarchal society. There's a whole lot more going on with that. It has commonly been, historically been, uh, you know, men's greatest struggle or big struggle, and men have struggled with this, with lust, for sure. 
but it's, it's rapidly becoming a problem for women in our, in our culture as well. We'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. And so even though Jesus is using male language here, let's understand that the concept of sin is the same. It's when we have the wrong desires for the wrong reasons that we are on the very edge of sin. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. To look lustfully means to want something that you shouldn't want. To have the wrong desires. It's actually very similar to the sin of covetousness. To desire something that doesn't belong to you. To desire something that isn't yours. One of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't covet. And so the sin is actually happening in the mind and in the heart long before it ever is acted upon in the flesh. Long before that. Now the other thing that Jesus does in this section, in this verse, is he, is he does two things. One is he affirms the sanctity of marriage. Adultery is having sex with anyone who's not your spouse. That's the classic definition. That's what it means. And so he affirms the sanctity of marriage. That sex belongs in marriage with your spouse. But the other thing that he does is that he rejects the objectification of women outright. To look on a woman, and it's not your wife, but to look on a woman, any woman with the wrong desire is sin because it objectifies her. It dehumanizes her and it depersonalizes her. She's a woman made in the image of God. She's a daughter of God. She's somebody's mother. She's somebody's wife. She's somebody's sister. And Jesus says to look at a woman and not see her for who she is as a person created in the image of God, but instead to see her as an object that exists for your gratification, for your sensual gratification, that's just wrong. There's no way to make that right. That's just wrong. That's sin. And that's what Jesus says. To look on a woman, any woman, and desire her for your own sexual gratification is sin. And Jesus takes the bar and he puts it way over here in the ground. Way over there in the ground. Now, this is obviously relevant in our, in our day and age because, you know, you think of the Me Too movement, and I do not want to get into any of the politics around any of that. But women, as they, are, as they are growing in their empowerment, are saying, wait a minute, I don't come to work to be sexually objectified. I don't come to my job to be, to be treated like a sexual object. And they're beginning to, to stand up and express that. And they don't, and they shouldn't. And it's wrong when it happens. And for men who have treated women in the workplace or any place, at school or any place like that, it is sin by Jesus' standards. It's a form of adultery. Now he says this. In the second part of this, he says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now this is pretty strong language. In the end, what he's talking about here is he's saying that what we need is a radical self-discipline. That guys who have this issue, who struggle with this, we need a radical self-discipline. 
Now, there's a lot that could be said to this, and in these two messages, there's so much more to be said that I am not going to have time to say. And so you've got to fill in the gaps. And here's a great place for me to insert a plug for our Celebrate Recovery Ministry, because our Celebrate Recovery Ministry helps people who struggle with issues develop a radical self-discipline in the right way in their life so they don't fall prey to the bad things in their lives as much anymore. It is a wonderful ministry because it's tough stuff. To develop this kind of radical self-discipline is tough stuff. We'll talk about that more next week. It's not something that we can do by our sure willpower. And if you struggle with any of these kinds of sexual sin, then you know how easy it is to fall prey to your own temptations once again, even though you've determined in your own mind and heart you'll never do it again. Because our willpower is not a radical enough form of self-discipline. But here's the thing. Why right eye? Why right hand? Well, in, in the culture of Jesus' day, in the Jewish culture, those things meant something. The right eye represented the imagination and intention. And here's what I want us to understand. He's using right hand and right eye and right hand because what he's wanting to get at is our culpability. The fact that we make choices. We don't just fall into sexual sin. We choose it every single time. It can be such a slippery slope. Our choices can be so ingrained in us that we don't even notice them happening anymore. But make no mistake about it. From Jesus' perspective, it's always a choice. It's always a choice. And we're culpable for that choice. And so the right eye represents our imagination and our intention. A little later on in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going to say, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. It's a powerful thing that he's saying. He's saying you have to have a single purpose in your life. You have to have a single focus in your life. You have to make sure that your life is so focused on living for God and living for Jesus that that is what your life is about. And when you do that, your body will begin to be full of light. Because in him there is no darkness and no shadow of darkness. But when we let darkness in through the eye, what happens? We don't have light. We have darkness. And later on he says, and how deep is that darkness? One of the things about this kind of sin for us is that it is so, it is so uh, mischievous. It is so enslaving. It's so, it, it, it fools us. We fool ourselves into thinking that somehow we can be okay with this. And God can be okay with this. And we need to be honest with ourselves and realize that God is never, ever okay with it. It is always sin. It is always wrong. The right eye. So what he's saying is that we need a radical discipline for our imagination and our intentions. A radical discipline for our minds, our thought life, controlling our thought life, controlling our choices. And he says, and if we're struggling with that, and we've got the wrong ideas in our heads, and we have the wrong choices being made, we have to radically get rid of those and radically change. And likewise, the right hand represents the decisive action and choices that we make. It's the right hand. 
the preferred hand. And what it implies is a willfulness, an intention, a commitment, a decision that I will do this. And so what he's saying here is he's saying in order for us to understand how we can correctly view the opposite sex, we have to examine our thoughts and our choices and our attitudes and say, are they right? Are they right? Are they what God has said? Are they God-honoring? Are they, are, am, I, am I looking at the, at the opposite sex? Am I looking at myself as a sexual person the way that God intended and God created and God wants me to? Because if I'm not then I'm going to have bad thoughts and make poor choices when it comes to my sexual being, my sexual person. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Now, you might say, why are we talking about this in church? Well, one of the reasons we're talking about it in church is because we don't talk about it in church. Um, Rachel, Rachel Kay, um, my beloved office mate uh, and my right arm in everything that happens at Forestbrook. Uh, she found a, a four-part cassette series of a sermon series that Rod Wilson did on sexual ethics in 1996. As far as I know, that's the last time we had a sermon series on this subject. Um, so I went and I listened to it. And I, for all of you old Forestbrookers, I, I so understand why you loved Rod. Wow. What an amazing pastor-teacher he is. How blessed the church was to have him uh, lay down the foundation in this church. That's awesome. And I'm, I've taken it, I took it to Costco to get it digitized because I want to put it in our church library in digital form so that you can access it because it's a wonderful four-part series on the sin of David and Bathsheba and he just does some amazing teaching on it. It'll be there hopefully in a week or so. You can check it out and listen to it. Uh, it would be a great thing to do a small group around someday for, uh, for people who want to spend time on that. But we haven't talked about it a lot, and we need to talk about it more. One of the reasons why we're doing this is because last year, a couple, for the last couple of years, we've had Brett Ullman come and talk uh, at our uh, Let's Talk series on Tuesday nights. And he's done talks on porn and on uh, sex and on media and all those kinds of things. And then we get together with people and we talk about them afterwards. And the last time he was here, when he talked about, about um, uh, porn and uh, the pervasiveness of it and shared some of the statistics that he did, I was absolutely blown away. I was floored and, and realized, wow. You know, and as he said, we don't talk about it in church. So today we're talking about it because we need to. Now, I'm going to share some statistics. And you know what? We can get all bugged out about statistics. And I don't want us to make a lot about these statistics. I want us to hear the overall general effect of them. And we can, we can, obviously, I've done statistics at university more times than I want to count. And um, I know all of the foibles that are part of statistics, right? So I'm not holding these out as gospel. I'm simply saying that, that the researchers are telling us this is the scope of the problem. The worldsapart.org uh, surveyed 1,200 Christians and found that 60% of them, 60% uh, of the men are addicted to pornography. And 20% of the women and it's a Christian survey. Safe Hope Home, which is a recovery home for sexual or for victims of sexual exploitation here in the Durham region, said that one in nine men use prostitutes in the Durham region. In 2016, the Durham Regional Police investigated 114 incidents of sex trafficking uh, along the 401 
between Bowmanville and Pickering. Most were men uh, on their way to work, stopping in to uh, see a prostitute. The National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children uh, announced that there are 20,000 images of child pornography being posted on the World Wide Web every week. There are 100,000 websites offering child pornography, and 20% of all internet pornography involves children. One of the things that Brett talked about is that pornography and sexual sin escalates and, and can often go and get harsher and harsher and, and, and worse and worse as we become duller and duller and duller to its disastrous effects. A 2016 uh, article in Christianity Today said that 60% of couples, and these are Christian couples, experience an affair. 60%. 90% of teenage boys have been expo exposed to porn by the time they reach high school, and the average age of starting to look at pornography is 11. 20% of millennial women report being addicted to pornography. Many millennials are entering marriage having had multiple sexual partners beforehand, sometimes as many as five or six on average. Relevant magazine in 2009 reported that 80% of evangelicals between the ages of 18 and 29 said that they'd had sex before they were married. Christian Mingle survey in 2014 said that 61% of Christian singles are willing to engage in premarital sex. And 11% indicated that they were waiting to have sex in their marriage. Just 11% said they were waiting for marriage. Quoting from the book, The State of Affairs Up With Infidelity, a CNN article in October 2017, said that since 1990, the number of women having affairs is up by 40%. Why? Because as women are finding their empowerment in the home and in the workplace and in the culture, they're adopting the same bad habits that the men ahead of them had. God, keep us from that. As women find their empowerment, please do it better. Please do it better than we did it. The Huffington Post in 2016 reported that the fastest growing, and this is actually, a, they were quoting from a psychology today, research article, but they reported that the fastest growing rate, or fastest, the cohort, sorry, the cohort with the fastest growing rate of sexually transmitted diseases is seniors. And they went on to say that what goes on in an assisted living home can sometimes be comparable to what goes on in a hotel during March break. We might say, well, that's an exaggeration, and I hope it is. But there is no aspect of our culture that is not touched by sexual sin. There's no generation. There's, no, there's, there, there's just no corner of our society that is not being impacted by this. And if these statistics are true, then we have a real problem in the church. We have a real problem in the church, and we need to talk about it. And we need to bring it out of the shadows and out of the secrecy and into the light and seek help. That's what we need to do. Now, the other reason I said that we were going to do this, or there is another reason why we're going to do this, 
It's not just the statistics, it's because it's personal. We have had people in our congregation who have been impacted by sexual sin. And it continues to happen. It's still happening. And so I've asked uh, Asif and Jennifer Kahn to come up and share their story with us this morning. So if they guys, if they could come up and have a seat, that'd be great. Asif and Jennifer have been praying about sharing their story for some time. They've had a lot of people praying for them. I've been praying for them. Others have as well. And I've asked them to do this today because I want us to understand that honesty is the best policy. And when we are open and honest with God and with one another about what's going on in our lives and we're willing to confess and repent, God is so faithful. He is so faithful to forgive and restore. So I want you to listen to Asif and Jen as they tell their story. And then I'll come back and have a few things to say after that. Is this on? Sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask again for your covering. Um, It is not our intention, Father, to shock. Um, We simply want to be transparent. Father, I pray for Asif and Jen that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit and faithfulness. I thank you for the work that you are doing in their life. I thank you for the work you're doing in their family. And I thank you for your faithfulness and your grace and your goodness. Lord, protect our hearts, protect our minds, and help us to to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Neither of us would have ever thought we would be up here before you today. Hearing what's recently been preached about trust and surrender, we take this step of obedience today, believing that this is what God is asking of us, to share publicly what has had to, up until today, be kept quite private. We're so very thankful for the family and friends who have prayed for and supported our family throughout this journey and in the days leading up to today. And we think it's important for you to know that we do this with the support of Megan and Matthew, our two precious kids who know our full story and who have given us the permission to share our family's private struggles now in a more public forum. Hearing other stories has been so helpful to us along the way. We've put much preparation into what we will say, but are trusting the Holy Spirit to bring understanding to those listening, conviction where necessary, and hope to those who need it. We pray that our story will testify to God's supernatural power to heal and restore what is broken, and that ultimately all glory will point to him. Amen. Let me begin by telling you a bit about my story. I grew up in a very strict family that didn't know God. My parents' love for my younger sister and I was manifested through material things but these things needed to be earned. 
Growing up in my house was a story of carrot and stick. Do what you were told and get rewarded. Don't and get punished, in my case, a good whooping. I lived to make them happy. I hungered for other people to like me, and I tried valiantly to win their approval, my first addiction. When bad things happened in our family, their approach was to deny it, hide it, prevent all others from knowing about it. Everything was a family secret. Our business was our business, and nobody else needed to know. The external opinion of the family was paramount. I was looking for love and acceptance, but feeling lost and alone. At the age of nine, I was molested and sexually abused by our live-in nanny, a family relative. I was too afraid to resist, and yet the abuse as I now understand it seemed so exciting and natural. For the first time in my life, I felt worth of love. No child ever deserves to be abused in any way. The sexual abuse was never addressed by my family, and thus I found I had no good reference point to govern my future behavior. In fact, when my parents learned of it, their response was to push this into the family secret box. This action only served to reinforce the hiding and lying behavior they had always modeled for me. Through the abuse, I was awakened to my sexuality and sex long before any child should. By 11, I had discovered magazines and eventually the internet, leading to an addiction with pornography that persisted all my life. I carried these addictions for approval and sex into my adult life. And at 25, I entered the workforce and my marriage at about the same time. In my life, I had found, sorry, in my wife, I had found a solid Christian woman that modeled an unconditional love that I had never seen before, and I wanted that. Somehow, the hiding and lying behavior learned as a child surfaced in full force now. The double life of good Christian husband, father at home, and approval-seeking addict on the road were in perfect harmony. In fact, this new work environment only brought out greater opportunities to feed the addictions. Being a successful entrepreneur and speaker encouraged women to try and tempt me, and as an addict seeking approval and sex, I responded, and this led to several adulterous encounters. It was a true double life. To this day, I don't fully understand how my brain was able to keep these activities in my two worlds so separate. I was able to do these things in my addiction-fulfilling selfishness without recognizing the damage and hurt I was causing to my family at home, and all of this happening whilst I'm a Christian. In hindsight, looking back, I was struck by the possibility that God's apparent inaction in this painful area of my life might have been deliberate. He hadn't afflicted me with these addictions, that was clear, but maybe he loved me too much to take it away. Maybe these, these issues were the only lever in my life big enough to force me out of my determined isolation and into honest relationships with other members of the body of Christ. In October of 2015, God had had enough and tried several times to reach me through messengers here at church. And twice I denied that anything was wrong. Never before have I personally witnessed the spiritual battle that is going on for our souls. It was so evident to me now. And finally, he broke through by exposing my double life to my wife. And still, I tried to minimize and defend. I was really good at wearing a mask, at hiding all of this, and Jen didn't know about any of it. It was devastating to her and for me to see my worlds all come crashing down. 
When I discovered that first terrifying clue, I knew in an instant that something was drastically wrong and that my life and my marriage would be forever changed by what was happening in that moment. More things were revealed in the next few days, one bit at a time. What I believe was God giving us only as much as, he could, as we could handle at each step. Nothing had prepared me to hear my husband admit to numerous affairs, a secret social life while on the road with people I knew nothing about, and a pornography addiction that had lasted the entire length of our marriage. I could see the fear in his face as he told me, not knowing how I would respond. It seemed surreal while it was taking place. He didn't look or sound like himself, and he was saying things that didn't make sense for who I knew him to be. He loved me. I knew he did. So how could he be admitting to these things, and how could this be happening? On top of it all, it was the first I'd ever heard of the sexual abuse he'd suffered as a child. The way in which he told me gave me a glimpse into the shame and embarrassment that had been instilled in him about the abuse. Coupled with the trauma of everything else being revealed at the same time, I wasn't able to provide the comfort I would have otherwise wanted to if the circumstances had been different. After hours of talking, despite the fears and unknowns and despite how we felt in that moment, we promised each other that we would do everything we could to save our marriage and keep our family together. While it had been a regular practice for us to pray with our kids, we'd never made it a habit to pray alone as a couple. So that night, for the first time, we prayed to God, the only one who was going to be able to fix what was so badly broken, and we promised to keep doing so every day, no matter how we felt. This was one of the first positive and lasting changes to come out of a horrible situation. The next morning, it felt like a bomb had exploded. Sexual betrayal affects every area of your life, and nothing is left untouched. I no longer recognized my husband, myself, or my life. We sought help immediately, began individual counseling with Christian therapists, received spiritual counseling from the staff and elders here, and put measures in place to keep both of us safe at home and when he traveled. What followed for me were weeks of feeling numb. My guess is that God allowed this period of shock to protect me from the full impact of the gravity of what we were facing. He moves in mysterious ways. We brought only who was necessary into our situation in an attempt to shield our kids from knowing that anything was going on. We tried to keep up appearances for them and for others. It was hard to hide the thick tension between us. Close friends covered for us as some of you questioned them about what was up with us, sensing something was wrong. I poured myself into every activity I could in an attempt to keep my mind sane, to try to make things seem normal when they felt anything but, longing for a break and thinking about our circumstances. But whenever I stopped for longer than a moment, it was all still there, and it hurt so much. Psalm 91.4, my favorite verse, says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. Through his grace, God used this period of time to bring me into a closer relationship with him. I begged God to show me what to do, how to stay, how to protect our kids, and for the strength to get through each day. Understandably, some people have questioned why I chose to stay in my marriage. I understood at that time that I faced a decision at our wedding, I'd vowed to stay with Asif through better or worse. This was most definitely the worst. I'd vowed to stay married until death parted us. 
Would I keep the promises I'd made both to Asif and to my Heavenly Father or back out because I was hurting? Jesus never walks away from us despite the ways in which we hurt him. Mm -hmm. And that's the standard we are called to live up to, to love others like Jesus loves us. Separation and divorce are not God's plan for marriage, and it wasn't what I wanted. I loved Asif with my whole heart. That had not changed. I wasn't willing to give up on our marriage. I knew that staying was what God wanted and what I wanted. I just didn't know how I was going to do that. The weight of realizing all that I had done brought me to a place of guilt and deep shame. How could I face my friends at church or work? What would people say? Was there any way out? Could our marriage be saved? I was in a place of hopelessness. And yet together we decided that God wanted us to work on this marriage. He had ordained it and he had not given up on us. So we weren't going to give up on him. And still, I remember coming in here for the first few Sundays, not wanting to sing the songs or say the words anymore. All of a sudden, I didn't feel worthy of them. The tension between Jen and I was also there, and we tried desperately not to let on, but to a very few people that we had shared our struggles with. What made me want to change and work on this instead of running away? I was tired of trying to do this on my own. Three weeks ago, Jim said that stuff is not right in our marriages with our neighbors and when we are alone. He asked if we were thirsting for God to fix it. In my pain, I finally recognized that I could not do this alone, and I was looking for a community of people that would support my decision to work on this, and I found it here at Forestbrook, in the pastors, in our close friends, and especially in Celebrate Recovery. Having a group of people I could share with without being judged, people who I could identify with as they have had or were having similar life struggles, all whilst being followers of Christ. This is what I needed. The first two th steps we're taught in Celebrate Recovery are, one, to admit that we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors and that our lives have become unmanageable. And two, that we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I had to decide if I wanted to be like Saul or like David. Both men had committed great sins against the Lord and how they handled it was very different. Saul admitted his sin, but he was still concerned about saving face, about protecting his reputation in the world. David, however, confessed his sin and realized that ultimately betrayal is that against God and not the people of this world. He had to repent before him, and he was a broken man. And this is how I now felt too. It was one thing to realize the harm I had caused to Jen and my family and my friends, but realizing the pain I must have caused my Lord and Savior was a whole other level. As time went on, the harsh reality of our situation played itself out. Feelings I tried so hard to avoid came rushing to the surface, and I felt their overwhelming and unrelenting impact in a new way. At times, I felt like I was losing my mind. While not under the false impression that we'd had a perfect marriage prior to that, I'd had not one clue or suspicion that any infidelity was taking place until God brought everything to light. I struggled with the reality that my trusted life partner had lied to me and manipulated circumstances with expert skill. I knew that staying with him was risky, and yet still, thankfully, I had no desire to leave. For me, this time was characterized by a series of polar opposites. 
acting like an obsessed detective, relentlessly searching for clues to uncover a past I'd known nothing about, constantly afraid there might be bad things still happening that I was missing, yet being afraid of finding out more, unable to forget the hurtful details that I was, un that I was uncovering, wanting a safe with me so that I knew what he was doing at all times, yet not being able to stand being around someone who had hurt me so badly, hating him for the destruction that was our life at that time, yet loving him with a new intensity, more aware now of how hard I was willing to fight to avoid losing him, desperate to have him hold me and tell me everything was going to be okay, but shuddering at the thought of physical contact, wanting to comfort him in the pain that I knew he was experiencing, yet holding him responsible as the source of that pain and wanting him to feel at least as bad as I was feeling. I spent much time feeling holier than thou, not something I'm proud of, since God hates all sin, and I'm certainly not without it myself. And then, months of anger at Asif, at the women with whom he'd been involved, at those who hadn't given him the help he'd so desperately needed as a child, angry that so many memories were now tainted by the realization of what had been going on at the same time. I was jealous of my friends who had what I had decided to myself were easier marriages, envious of the trusting relationships they shared with their husbands. And I was mad at God. I didn't like what he had known about and allowed to progress to the point it had. Nothing felt fair. I questioned his plan for our family over and over. I'm so thankful we have a God who understands and permits our anger, who allows us to question him, and who patiently waits for us to come to realize his plan and purpose, which he only unfolds in his time, in his way. His plans are always good, and I've learned that now. Despite the close and constant support of family and friends, I felt very alone, constantly sad and separate from others. Being in this building provided such comfort. Yet when people asked how I was, the answer was almost always fine. It's crazy, isn't it? How many of us walk into church each week and pretend to be fine, when this is the very place where we should be able to say how not fine we actually are. Imagine what could happen if we were honest with each other and if we allowed others into our pain to see us as we actually are. Discovering that my husband had been viewing pornography throughout our marriage did huge damage to my self-esteem. Coupled with the years of infidelity, I struggled then and continue to now with feelings of not being enough. Not pretty enough, not exciting enough, not interesting enough, not sexy enough, not intriguing enough. What I'd once thought was uniquely sacred between us was gone, given to others so seemingly easily. The feeling of being cherished by him had vanished. The days were long and hard, but slowly over time, we started to see God working, protecting our kids, changing us individually, healing us together. A new sense of hope had started to build. After a few months of working on this, I understood what the therapist had been saying, that recovery and reconciliation is a long process. There is no quick fix. Here we are more than two years into this, and still we have hard days and difficult moments. 
I had to learn not to be selfish and instead be focused on God and others. And I got there through therapy on my own and together as a couple. And I got there through the constant encouragement, support, and mutual understanding of my brothers and sisters in Celebrate Recovery, which I still attend every week that I can. And I got there with the help of my Tuesday night Bible study crew and my sponsor. And I got there with a ton of prayer. It's hard, hard work with many hours spent feeling tired and exhausted, many days of wondering if we're gonna make it through, many moments of screaming and yelling and me getting defensive, and lots of times of wanting this healing to just be done already. They say patience is a virtue. That is one that I've had to really learn. How not to pressure Jen to move this along faster how not to ask for forgiveness, but to wait until she was ready. And then there was the kids. At some point, once we were stable, we decided that healing from this must be a whole family thing. But how do you tell your children that you desperately want to protect and keep shielded from this, that you, their dad, was abused, had cheated on their mother, and was involved with pornography? This was probably the scariest moment for me. I remember the week leading up to talking to Megan, cherishing every ride in the car, every conversation, and every hug, thinking each time this could be the last. I went into it expecting what I deserved, anger at the dad that had hurt her, her brother, her mother, and her family. Instead, she listened and took it all in. By the grace of God, she responded with compassion and love. She was mad at, at what I had done, but she was not mad at me, and she loved me still. God is good. Amen. A few months later, when we spoke to Matthew, God blessed us again in the, same, in the way he responded, with absolute grace. Our children learn from our example. I remember being told that having them see the struggle and the healing would prepare them for their own relationships in the future. That bad things can happen, but with God, we can make them right. And if they face things in their futures, God would help them too. Jen Hatmaker says of forgiveness, God absolutely has a plan and path to walk you straight out of the prison of unforgiveness, betrayal, bitterness, and a darkened heart. But it is work, such work. It will look ridiculous, as Jesus' stuff often does. People will tell you to nurture your anger instead. You deserve to, after all. You'll look like a sucker, maybe. It may even feel awful somewhere in the middle of it. But you do this work, and you will walk right out of that prison into the fresh, clean air. Do it. Trust God's counsel here. It may feel impossible, but you are strong enough for this. I didn't feel strong enough for it, and it did feel impossible. I felt haunted by what had happened, women I didn't know, a marriage that had been different than what I thought it to be all along. I longed to be able to genuinely forgive my husband, who I knew was sorry, and who I could see had changed in dramatic ways. I genuinely liked the new version of himself that I could see he was becoming. I worked on forgiveness through months of therapy, read numerous books on the subject, lamented to God, and begged him to give me the I read I feel ready to forgive now feeling that I craved. Numerous verses make it clear that God commands forgiveness. Colossians 3.13 says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. 
Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Throughout my life, I prayed, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Were they just going to be empty words that I wouldn't live up to, just because what I was trying to forgive was so daunting? But then, away by myself one weekend, alone in my hotel room, Amazingly, my Heavenly Father spoke to me through his word, helping me to see these verses from Jeremiah in a new way. I'll show up and take care of you as I promised and bring you back home. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. When you call on me, when you come to me, when you come and pray to me, I'll listen. When you come looking for me, you'll find me. Yes, when you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. I had a new decision to make, not whether or not I wanted to forgive, but whether or not I wanted to truly follow Jesus. If I did, I had to do what he commanded. God wasn't requiring me to feel like I could do it. That feeling might never come. No, I believe he wanted me to realize that the only possible way to forgive was through him, not of my own accord, not on my own strength or ability or feeling. He was asking me to trust him to do what only he was capable of doing. Mercifully, the pressure of the, of the decision disappeared. Out of obedience to God, I offered forgiveness that weekend to the women who had hurt me, and several weeks later, I was able to offer complete forgiveness to Asif, to surrender my marriage and all the pain I felt to God for him to heal and restore. Was everything different immediately afterward? No. Life went on without a lot feeling different at first. But slowly, in the weeks that followed, things did start to change. My heart began to catch up with my head, and the forgiveness began to change from a decision made in obedience into a hurt feeling. It has been freeing for both of us. Forgiving hasn't taken away the hurt. It still surfaces more often than I'd like. But when those difficult feelings come, I repeat to myself, I've forgiven, and the Holy Spirit helps me to deal with my feelings, some days with better success than others. Our marriage is stronger than ever. We still pray together every night. We share more intimately about our days, the good and the bad. We take much more interest in each other's work and, and encourage each other to spend time with good friends as well. When I look back at my marriage, my relationship with my family, friends, and even work colleagues, I see how much it lacked. I had no real deep communications or intimacy around my actual problems or my own feelings. And I'm happy to report that my work life, my home life, my church life are all quickly becoming just one synchronized in God life. Mm -hmm. Amen. <clears throat> the most difficult thing to open can be a closed mind. Romans 12.2 tells us, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the re renewing of your mind. I needed to transform my mind from the filth and secrets that the devil said was okay. In the past, my priorities were self-centered and self-serving, but our God is a God of second chances. It took me some time to buy into the fact that no matter how grievously we may have injured others or ourselves, the grace of God is always sufficient. His forgiveness is always complete with no strings attached. Mm -hmm. We often continue in our extreme behaviors because we don't know how to change or even where to start. 
But if we continue to keep our secrets, the cycle of unhealthy choices will continue into the next generation. And I didn't want this to continue in my life, and I certain, certainly didn't want this for my wife and kids. The opportunity to share our secrets with safe people can finally help us escape from the guilt and shame we've carried for so long. Celebrate Recovery, combined with God's power to change my identity, taught me that rather than being an addict or a victim, I could become a testimony to God's grace. And all my life, all my life, I struggled with insecurities, never feeling I was good enough or smart enough or just enough. Through God, I finally come to realize that I am, in fact, his perfect masterpiece. Temptation isn't a sin. In fact, on the positive side, it's a call to battle. When we are about to fall back into our old habits and hurts, we need to command the devil, as Jesus did, away from me, Satan. Mm -hmm. I'm determined to do my part to break this cycle of dysfunction in my family. And although I wish I hadn't inflicted so much pain on them, I now understand how necessary it was for me to go through what I did in order to come to grips with the underlying issues that were motivating my behavior. During my recovery, I have experienced more pain and shed more tears than ever before. I revisited and reopened wounds I had hoped only to bury, but in the process, I began to find healing. God never wastes pain. My life verse is Psalm 32, three to five. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. We fought hard to stay together and with God's help are creating a new marriage. God has been renewing my heart, allowing me to slowly start to fall in love with my husband again. There's still much work to do, and we pray constantly that God will continue his work in us. While it hasn't been easy for them, our kids have learned that we don't abandon each other no matter what. They know that together, with God, we can do hard things, and that God can turn bad to good. Mm -hmm. Matthew has said, our family isn't too normal, is it? Maybe not. Or maybe we're more normal than we think. Mm -hmm. We're real with each other and doing life without secrets anymore. And amazingly, even though it's not easy a lot of the time, our marriage and our family is stronger and healthier than it was before. I like the person I'm married to, the new version of himself that he is becoming, and I love him like crazy. It's amazing, isn't it, that something stronger can come from such a devastating situation. What the devil intended to harm us, God is using for his good. That's what God is like. Yep. He can meet us at the bottom of our pit, provide us with his hope and promises, surround us with the people and supports we'll need, require us to do the hard work and begin to make new, beautiful, God-honoring lives and marriages that attest to his glory. But his glory can only be made known if we are willing to share our stories with one another, if we're willing to share both the good and the hard stuff of life together. Being vulnerable can be scary, but it's better. It's more real. It allows us to help each other and pray more specifically for one another. What if, whatever issue you may be facing, 
we pray that hearing our story might give you hope in God's power to bring healing. Max Lucado says, you'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this mess for good. It's worth doing the work. God can and will heal. He's got you, and he cares for you because he loves you so very much. Amen. Amen. Howard. I've asked Howard, as the chair of our elders board, if he would pray for Asif and Jen before they step down. Could you give them a round of applause? I don't know if that, that took a lot of courage. grace is beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Your ability to love us and to see through all the pain and the hurt that we bear and that we cause is beyond anything that we could ever imagine. As Jim spoke last week, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways so much higher than our ways as the heavens above so far away. Lord, I thank you so much for the, the courage uh, that you've instilled uh, in this amazing couple, Lord, whose testimony this morning is so powerful before us because it exposes our weakness, Lord. It exposes, it exposes our pain. It shines a light on it in a way that allows us, Lord, not to be able to ignore it, but, Father, to confront it and to and to lay it at your feet. In your word in Corinthians, Lord, you said that um, the godly sorrow leads to repentance and leaves no regrets. And though the process is long and there's much pain and we've heard so much, Lord, about the, the tears, Lord God, and, and the difficult conversations and the shame, all these things that have been experienced, Lord, we know that you are leading us away from that and, and away from regret towards empowerment by the Holy Spirit to live victorious lives, to be more than overcomers through you. And Father, truly in, in the life of this couple and, and in my life and in the lives of so many in our church, there are mountains in front of us, the Lord, that we don't feel that we could ever get across, that we could ever get under, we could ever get through. But Father, you said that, Lord, even with just the face of the mustard seed, we could say to that mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. This isn't because of our power. This isn't because of our strength, even as a thief testified and as Jen testified. It is only because of the power of your spirit. It is only your spirit, Lord God, that can allow us to overcome the darkness, Lord, that would seek to overcome us. There's no room here for judgment, Lord. There's no room here for condemnation. There is room here, Lord Jesus, to accept the forgiveness that you've given so freely. Amen. And Father, to forgive even as you have forgiven. There's no room, Lord, here for hate. 
There's only room for love. There's no room for scorn, Lord, because, Father, even as Jesus said to those that were looking at the woman who was caught in adultery, you who have no sin cast the first stone. There is none of us that is untouched by sin in this place. That's true. But, Father, all of us stand and sit here under your grace, under your love. Teach us, Lord, to respond to each other with the same love that comes from Christ. Teach us, Lord God, to look at each other's sins, Lord, not as something to berate each other about or to hold each other down or look down upon each other about, but, Father, as an opportunity for the grace of God to come in and, and to be transformative and to change and to grow and to heal and to strengthen. And in the name of Jesus, I come against everything that the enemy would seek to do, even from this moment, from what we've heard today. I know the enemy would love to take these words and to twist them and to use them to cause harm. Father, to cause us to turn against one another. But Father, we know that you have brought these words for healing. Mm -hmm. And so I speak healing and I speak life Amen. into this family. And I speak healing and I speak life into our church family. Amen. Let your light shine yes. through us and in us, Lord God. Bring that healing as only you can. Yes. Touch us, Eve and Jen. Touch their children. Mm -hmm. Continue, Lord, to feed them the strength that they need to continue to grow together. Yes. Father, open up every heart in this place. Open my heart to hear from you. And Father, to also be just as ready as they are to confess our sins before you. And Lord, not to depend on our own will, but to depend on your spirit to bring us to a whole new place. Transform us, Lord God, daily, as the thief said, by the renewing of our minds. I thank you so much for Jennifer's strength. I thank you so much for her willingness, Lord God, to just turn it all over to you and to forgive when forgiveness is so hard. She's a mighty woman of God. I thank you for Asif's humility, Lord. His words that said he had to grow in patience, knowing that the hurt that he caused, he can't demand forgiveness. But, Father, that he had to be humble and wait. And I thank you, Lord God, that your spirit has just come over the two of them and allowed this all to, mm -hmm. to work in this way. I love them, and I know you love them. And I know you've surrounded them about with so many witnesses, Lord God, so many people who have poured into their lives much more than some of us could. And this is because you love them too. Mm -hmm. Bless us all, I pray, Lord. I give you all the thanks and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'll invite the worship team to come back up and ask the ushers to come forward for communion. I just have a few things to share as we go into communion. I'm going to ask you to give us another 10 minutes. And uh, that's because I believe that it's really important that we go from this place to communion. And uh, you might feel that you need to rush out. And if that's so, it's, that's, that's fine. But I would like you to consider, first of all, um, how much you and I need Jesus. And how much you and I need what... Uh, this communion represents.
Um, Asif said in his, in his testimony that a few times he was approached and denied what was going on. And the first time, the Holy Spirit whispered to me that something might be going on in Asif's life. I went to him and I talked to him about it and he lied to me. And he told me there was nothing going on. A few weeks later, he called me and he said, can I talk to you again? And he told me about the affair. And then a little while after that, he said, can I talk to you again? And it began to come out. By that time, Jen knew, the family knew. And here's what I want to say. Each of us can lie to one another. But we cannot lie to the Holy Spirit. We cannot lie to God. We can never lie to God. God knows it all. Whatever secrets we have from one another, we have none from him. None from him. And though sometimes time goes on and and things don't get discovered or dealt with, we don't go looking for, for people's sins. But as a pastor, it's my responsibility and as elders and as leaders of the church to shepherd people through whatever their circumstances. But sooner or later, the Holy Spirit brings it to light to save us from hell so that we can confess it and repent of it and receive grace and forgiveness. We're going to the communion, Rob, by the way, just I meant to tell you that. And um, how do we get to communion from this point? Well, I think it's just so absolutely natural. We read in 1 John 1, 14, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. We've heard Asif and Jen talking about their journey through that. If we're denying, if we're denying, then nothing's happening. We might still be being covered by God's grace, but the sin is not being forgiven or dealt with. We're simply in denial. And one day, we'll need to account for it. But if we are dealing with, and today we're, st- we're dealing specifically with sexual sin, as, as Jen said, we know that this is just one of any kind of sin that we can be caught up with. But today we're talking about our sexual sins. And if, if we're sitting here today struggling with something in that, in that vein in our life, it's time to confess it. It's time to bring it before the Lord and ask for help. If we confess it, he is just and faithful and forgives it and sets us on a path of recovery. He's not out to destroy us. He's not out to humiliate us. He's not out to shame us. He wants to redeem us. He wants to restore us. So that we can live in his kingdom both now and forever. Uh, Rob, put up the Psalm 25 uh, slide, if you would, please. 
I found this prayer, and I thought it would be a good prayer for us to meditate on as we, as we take communion. And so I'd like to just leave it up there for a minute while we start with the communion, and perhaps we could do the first part of communion just quietly. And we'll leave the slide up there. And, and I just, please hear my heart, hear our heart. We're not here to judge anyone. We're not here to shame or condemn anyone. I don't stand before you as a perfect person in this area. I am tempted just like every other person is. But secrecy and hiding is our enemy. And so as we read about, as we get ready to take communion, I I urge you to open your heart to the Lord. Is there something in your life, in this area, that you need to confess? Let it begin in this communion. Let it begin as we take the bread and the cup. Let it begin as we remember that the reason we have forgiveness is because Jesus died on the cross to take away that sin. To take it away. And he took it on himself. Shame and all. And so we pray, remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love for they are from old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his ways. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep his covenant. That's us. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is very great. If that's your prayer today, and you mean it from the depth of your heart, your sin is forgiven. Recovery, restoration, begins today. We'll have people up at the front to pray with anyone who wants to be prayed with today. Um, we have another part of this message next week, but in the week ahead, I just I ask us to reflect. Is this something that we need to bring to God and surrender to him? Let us be genuine and honest and open, just as Asif and Jen have been with us, so that we can be restored. I'll pray for the elements and then we will have our communion and the worship team will finish us off. Father, it's been, uh, it's been a different kind of morning. But Father, everything that we have said and done, we have done as an offering before you because you are a holy and an, a God without blemish. You are a God of purity and in you there is no shadow, no darkness whatsoever. And you call us to be a people of light. You are so gracious, so loving, so patient with us. And sometimes, Lord, God forgive us, we presume upon that patience and we sometimes take your patience for license and we do that at our peril. Forgive us of that. Holy Spirit, your first work in the world is to convict us of our sin. And so we welcome that work in our midst today because we know that we will be better because of it. 
We want to be your people. We want to be the people that you want us to be, not just for ourselves, but so that, so that people in the world will look here and see a very different kind of community and a very different kind of people. Not a perfect one, but a group that is authentic and genuine and willing to say, Lord, we want to live your way. Help us. And Lord, you gave us Jesus. And Jesus, you gave yourself on the cross. And Holy Spirit, you call us back to Jesus and remind us of his shed blood and his broken body, his death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins so that when we are broken and we come before you and say, Lord, I've sinned, forgive me. You look at that cross. You look at Jesus and say, I forgive you. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would begin that work of recovery in our midst. Whatever, whoever here needs it, whatever heart you need to land upon in this way today, we ask you to do that and invite you to do that through these acts of communion. Bless the bread. Bless the cup. Bring us to Jesus. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. And to you be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen.